This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. This is episode 16 of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. This episode's a little different. I want to be releasing some little mini episodes throughout the week that aren't our interviews. So a couple of years ago, I believe it was October of 2018, I attended the Star Chefs Congress in New York City. And the past couple of years, I've been asked to write editorial wrap-up pieces on many of the workshops that I attended. So one of the workshops I attended was held by Jeremy Umansky of Larder in Cleveland. And he's doing a lot of work with Koji and Miso. And it's really interesting stuff. So I took the workshop. And while I was there, I recorded the audio on my iPhone so that I could listen to it and take notes to write the wrap-up piece, which I did. Uh, Star Chefs actually didn't end up running the wrap-up piece, and I've been sitting on that for a couple years now, not knowing what to do with it. Well, now Jeremy has a book coming out with uh, co-author Rich Shi of Our Cook Quest, and the book's called Koji Alchemy, and it comes out on May 6th, 2020, and you can pre-order it right now uh, through Amazon. And I always felt it was a shame that I had this great audio and wrap-up editorial I'd written in and never went anywhere. So I reached out to Jeremy and asked him if I could release the audio. Uh, I was not intending on releasing audio, so there are some issues. Uh, People asking questions, you don't always get to hear the question. I have edited some parts out, um, so if there's some weird context issue. It might be because I edited out some bad audio there. Um, There is a little echoing, but I still think it's worth listening. The episode runs about 27 minutes, and you can just hear about some of the really interesting things going on right now uh, in the food world centered around koji and miso. Uh, Jeremy's using a lot of his uh, food that would traditionally be food waste, uh, using leftovers, things like matzo balls to make a matzo ball miso, which I think is really interesting. So I'm going to upload the audio to this and hopefully you enjoy it. I'm going to put links uh, in the show notes so that you can find links to both Jeremy and Rich. I really love what they're doing and I think this is interesting stuff. So let me know what you think. I'd love to hear comments and feedback, especially about whether you would like to hear more things like this that aren't necessarily just interviews, but if we have really cool uh, topics to share and just kind of something to get you through the rest of the week. So enjoy the episode. Keep in mind, this is moldy rice. Anybody ever smell a piece of charcuterie covered in mold? Like think about what that smells. That smells like your basement and your dog after they've been running through the forest. So kind of come up and smell this and taste it and like register what it smells and tastes like it. To me, it doesn't taste or smell like what I would anticipate mold smelling and tasting like. Uh, the oregano is going to have a lot of fruity notes to it. Like overripened fruit, and a lot of people say tropical fruit, they'll say uh, things like pineapple or papaya. 
Um, we get honeysuckle, people say champagne or green apple. Those are all common descriptors for the orange, which is the sweater one here. It's also going to be really sweet. And keep in mind, that is literally just rice and mold. We didn't add sugar to that. That was all brought out from the bed. It did that. There's the, the, the black one to me tastes like pickled black trumpet mushrooms. That's that's my descriptor for that. And so that's that's got that tartness, right? That's a citric acid producer. I also feel it has more of a mushroomy kind of aroma, flavor to it. So much like a chanterelle would, right? Like chanterelles kind of smell and taste apricotty. That's a common descriptor for them. Black trumpets are really perfumey, right? So I kind of like the battle more I like that, that aroma, that flavor. So I'm going to start cooking some things. And um, you know, I've got some beans here. The idea was to kind of walk, uh, kind of at least walk you through the miso making process and show you how easy that is. Um, so if anybody wants to get their hands dirty, and make some miso, we've got some miso making stations. And miso is always best made with friends. Miso is a communal food. So if anybody wants to come up and get their hands dirty and start mashing up some beans, and we're gonna throw some koji in there. So when when I started working with these, these foods, um, we wanted them to be able to be made by, if I needed a dishwasher, someone that didn't really have culinary training or knowledge of this to be able to make it, we wanted them to be able to do it. So while there are specific ratios that are like time-honored and tested tradition, we essentially settled on, for miso making, one-to-one um, -one ratios. So we do one part protein, whether it's a bean or a sausage or a matzo ball, to one part koji. Uh, sometimes we mix that all out and just like for the matzo ball miso, I really took the matzo balls, I let them dry out on a sheet tray overnight, not till they were shrunken, but just tacky, crumbled them, and then dusted them with a little rice flour and koji spore. So actually for that one, I actually grew the koji on the matzo balls. Um, but for a miso like this, you know, one to one, you name it, whatever bean you love, that's it. Yeah, we're just gonna throw some koji in there, mash that into it. Now, the, the other piece of uh, miso making, you know, there's many different styles of miso. And we, we, we don't really use the word miso because that just denotes specific styles of the food that come from Japan. We make these, we call them amino pastes, all right? These are full of amino acids, they're super savory, they're umami, and they're really complex. Um, and that allows us to encompass everything from like um, Zhang in China or, or Dongjing from the Koreas or miso from Japan. Um, these are all amino paste. So when we make them, some we like to be a little bit more lactic and brighter than others. So we use lower salt concentrations. The lowest will go on salt is 5% by weight. And what that means is after the beans and the koji have been mixed together, we weigh it. And then we take that weight and figure out 5% of it, and we add that much salt and mix it up again. Sometimes we have to add moisture. Like if you look at these, these misos are actually like, these would be like perfect moisture right here. So if you kind of look at it, a little more moist than Play-Doh would be, okay? Um, is essentially what we have here. And you guys are doing, this is your sweet. 
So something like this, we could put another quart container in here that maybe got some beans in it to weigh down, or whatever it is. How much weight? You're, you're not trying. No, you're not trying to kill it. All right. You don't. If you put the weight in and it starts to like start pushing all the miso out, that's way too much weight. What it is, it's enough weight to keep it even and down. Because this is going to go through, this is a two-stage food. It goes through the fermentation period, which is driven by microbes, different species of lactobacillus and um, uh, uh, all sorts of different microbes that do that. Those are single-celled bacteria. And then the next process is the autolytic process. That's driven by the enzymes produced by the fungi, by the mold. All right, so the autolytic process happens, it's happening a little bit during the fermentation stage, but really happens after. During the fermentation stage, who's, who's fermented foods before? What happens? Bubbles, gas, right? If you make alcohol, things carbonate. If you're making sauerkraut, you can sit there and look at the jar and there's bubbles coming up in it, your kosher dough pickles, all that sort of thing. So the weight is on there to literally, as those bubbles are being produced, the way, it's just enough weight that it's gonna kinda push the bubbles out and get them out of there. Um, right, right, right. And really young mesos, like weeks, will, might have some of that. And they'll be more lactic-driven than they are in mommy. Um, but the weight keeps that from happening. The weight also gives you, there's a byproduct of miso making. Does anybody know what tamari is? Should you see it? It's, it's the hip thing because it's the gluten-free soy sauce. Well, it's not a... It's not... It's an amino sauce made from an amino paste. It's not a true amino sauce. Because what happens, all the liquid that's in here, uh, over time, uh, and through through different breakdowns of different things in here, that lip, liquid is gonna fall out of suspension and the weight's gonna push on it and you'll get a liquid on top and that liquid is tamari. So it's the liquid that's drawn off of when you make a miso. It doesn't make you pour it off and you use it. So let's pass this around. Can you use a traditional, uh, like, German-style crock with the weights? Yeah, you bet. Quart containers, I mean, we use all sorts of that. So I'm going to pass this around. Um, if you have your spoon, if not, put your finger on top and try it. That's an amino sauce, much like a soy sauce, but it's made from our leftover rye bread uh, whey that was a byproduct from when Kenny was making some ricotta. And um, we had some tomato water that we just threw in there too. So, yeah. Uh, we just throw those labels on there so that when someone's like, oh, you packed up a product, like at least they see we're trying and have met them halfway. Like we do have a full spread of HACCP plans at Larder. We make so many different foods with so many different ingredients though. Our HACCP plans are very base and generic. So like, if the health department comes in and says, oh, well, you do have a HACCP plan for like a traditional soy sauce, but you don't have one for this one you made, I can say, oh, I'm sorry, like, I'm gonna contact the state and request a variance. You know, we're trying to work with them as much as possible, but it's like, every little time I change an ingredient, like if I decide to use garbanzo beans instead of soybeans, I need a new HACCP plan, I need a variance, like, I'm still using a bean, like, come on, come here, break. You can sell that at the restaurant? Yeah, we sell that right away. Yeah, uh, we've got a merchandiser case. You can just open the door and grab that. And we'll pack out things like Shio coaches. He asked about Shio, um, which I totally forgot to bring some Amazaki or Shio. But in the packet, I break down how to make it. It's super simple. Uh, you take some koji. You take some then just plain cooked rice. 
and you mix them together. And for shield koji, you add salt. Uh, we try to do, once again, 5% salinity minimum. You can go as high as 15, 20 if you want. Um, and for the shield, you allow everything just to kind of sit there. You add a little water, but everything just sit there and let it ferment and bubble up, and you end up with shield koji. To make amazaki, um, you hold it at a much warmer temperature. So um, uh, the amylase that's in here, uh, amazaki is very sweet. And that's what they use as the basis for making sake, um, not of alcohols, because there's a lot of sugar in it, and the yeast get in there, and they love that. Uh, so to make amazaki, um, amylase, uh, that enzyme is most effective at about 140 degrees Fahrenheit. So what we'll do is we'll make mix equal parts of cooked rice, koji rice, or barley, whatever you have it grown on, um, in a jar, barely cover it with water, and we'll hold that in an immersion in a water bath. Um, at 138 degrees because the circulators vary a, a degree or two up or down. Um, we don't want to go over that 140 because then we see literally degradation and breakdown of the enzymes versus peak performance. Um, and your amazaki is ready in like 12 to 24 hours. All sorts of things. We use amazaki in the hydration in our rye bread. Um, we when we um, make our pastrami, uh, you know, we cure the meat with salt, um, and we put amazaki in the bags and we seal them up, and uh, you know, a lot of enzymes work on the meat and the walk in that way. Like we a whole host of applications. You can puree your amazaki really smooth, and it's like this just awesome beverage um, that you can sip on. And you can make alcohol and then make vinegar with it. Like it's there's a tons of tons of uses. So. Do you find any problems uh, fermenting in plastic? Um, I mean, yes, no. Like we use glass, we use plastic. We, you know, kind of the same approach that we take with, um, you know, no food waste. You know, when somebody finishes a tub of cornstarch, like we'll turn that into a fermentation vessel. Like it's, it's there. We haven't noticed too many issues. So, um, so kind of we're getting towards the end. I kind of wanted to like get into some of this stuff. So. I'm going to um, cook up this veal so that we can try it. Um, so here I have raw veal that I grew koji on. Um, so this more or less, now it is different, so I want you to keep that in mind. This more or less allows us to replicate the dry aging process in a much shorter time frame. Uh, when I first started doing this, I was um, doing a lot of back and forth work with a, a bovine anatomist, Dr. Phil Bass, who was a certified Angus beef at the time. And we eventually did like a cook-off taste test. And we did some koji cultured beef um, up against some dry aged, wet aged, and different timing curves. And the consensus is like, while it is different, uh, the 48 hour koji product, uh, taste wise and aroma and everything texture is pretty much on par with a 30 day dry aged piece of meat after 48 hours. And we don't have weight loss. And we don't have to cut off a mold crust. And um, it doesn't take 30 days. We're not sitting on product and having to monitor it and maintain refrigeration and all that stuff. So um, so that's kind of what we have here. And this is one of the first like hour techniques that I, I started working on developing uh, going back a few years. And um, things like this have like kind of morphed into, this is the vegetable charcuterie that we're making out order now. So this is a beet. Um, we start off with one of these, we cook them off, either roast them or boil them, 
Uh, we then smoke them to give them that meaty essence, right? So my goal isn't to necessarily make food for vegans. My goal is to essentially uh, make all foods delicious for carnivores, okay? So um, vegans are good people, I like them. They spend a lot of money with us, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, but my drive isn't necessarily to please vegans, it's to uh, introduce more vegetables to carnivores. So, um, you know, we, we smoke these, and then they get cured. Salt, sugar, we don't use curing salts because it's a vegetable, we don't need to. Um, and then after that, we inoculate them with, with the mold. So, I thought I had rice flour here, but it doesn't look like I do. Salt yeah, sure. That totally would. And then maybe you don't even need to cure it. Maybe it might be. And when we cure, it just allows us to be like spot on with the cure, right? So it allows me to cure a beet like these guys to two and a quarter percent. And I'm going to slice some of this so that everybody can taste it. Yeah, these little golden beets. Sometimes we use red beets. You know, we've, we've done uh, for a pop-up that Kenny and I did, you know, when we were trying to see if larder was uh, even viable. We did like these pastrami carrots that we did with a similar technique, um, kind of similar, still use koji in it. So, you know, there's a, a host of different different things that you can do. Um, but if you kind of look like this, like texture-wise, this it looks like locks, kind of. And it gets a meaty tooth to it, and like it's really cool. Because after, it is salty, like this is meant to be charcuterie, so you slice it thin and you don't eat a lot of it in one mouthful. Uh, but after the salt subsides, it's really fucking umami. Like most people will come up to you and they're like, it tastes like I ate meat. Yeah, go ahead. You can just grab a piece. Um, so what happens if you, if you would use the same thing? Uh, yeah, so like this. All right, so this kind of looks tempeh-esque. So this is my taki that got blanched, cured off a little bit. Um, I'm gonna sear some of these up with, this is like our, our next move, like creating like a cooked salami or like a burger or something. That's, that's um, I really wanna try this with charcuterie, but the test of drying this stuff out, it's kind of crumbly. So I gotta figure out some sort of Maybe agar, agar in there. This is my taki mushrooms that are koji's been grown on and they're like all grown together. Um, so yeah, with mushrooms, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, tapioca. So this I, I dust in, in rice flour. Um, and in the um, koji veal packet you have is like the exact detailed process for doing this. And like I said, lowest common denominator. We want to keep things as simple as possible. So when we do this, we literally, we take some rice flour. How much? I don't know. On this, I throw like a cup, maybe a couple handfuls of rice flour on here. I'd sprinkle some spores. How much? Well, a half a teaspoon is enough for two pounds of rice, so I weigh this. Maybe I need like a teaspoon and a half for this veal here. Then I mix everything up till it's nicely coated. And then what we do, the setup for that is super simple. We set up a tray like this. Imagine these were just dusted. We put them on wax. We take a fish tub and we cut out the bottom. So it's just like a frame. 
and we put it over this. Fill the bottom with water and wrap the whole thing in plastic. All right? How much water do you put in the bottom? I don't know, a cup, two cups of water, whatever. We just need some, some humidity to come up. And in the plastic, once again, just like I, I said when we go to the Koji, we poke a couple holes. Same thing here, we poke a couple holes, and then we hold it. 70 to 90 degrees, maintain that humidity. For most of the meats, we're definitely pulling at like 30 to 36 hours. Um, you know, just, it is a meat. Like if you hold it too long, it can spoil. Yep, at that temperature. Uh, and so we say 70 to 90. So at um, the lower end of that range, you have more protease production. Uh, at the higher end of that range, you have more amylase production. So if you're intending to do things that are super savory, be at that lower end of that temperature range. It'll take longer for the koji to grow, but it's producing more compounds that produce uh, the, the production of amino acids. So glutamates and that sort of thing. Um, at the higher range, you know, your, your amylase production is better, so you better, better breakdown of starches into sugars. So if you're making something like a shio koji, uh, or an amazaki, or you want to make sake, or rice vinegar, that sort of thing, um, you know, be at the higher end of that range, because it's going to be more beneficial. So. So if you're doing a hostage for it, can you still use that 60 degree rule for how long you can keep it out? Um, yeah, I mean, essentially with this stuff, we based it off of, um, you know, you, you ever make a fermented charcuterie, fermented meat, like a metwurst or a duya or whatever, like you, some people hold that for like three or four days at 70 degrees or, you know, maybe even a little higher. So it's the same philosophy. And with this though, with the food safety consultants we worked with, our argument was this is safer because it's a whole muscle cut. So we don't have anything that's ground and mixed up. Like anything that's surface dwelling is essentially okay because then I'm doing this. And anything that's pathogenic on the surface of this is now being killed okay. right before our eyes. So, um, you know, it's it's a layered protocol for establishing safety. Okay. So you yeah. just kill stuff as the end result? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're like just about done in super limited time. And as this often goes, so. I just jammed a whole bunch in here for you guys. We normally do this at Larder as a minimum of a two-hour class. Um, so I'm going to cook some of this up. We're going to get it going for you. I want you to at least be able to taste some of this meat because it's it's pretty fantastic. I, I like it. One thing to keep in mind, if you decide to culture some of your meat, your scale of cooking is dramatically different. Okay, so what was medium for you is now potentially well done because of how the enzymes have interacted with the structure of the proteins in this meat it can toughen up instead of being juicier so you want to cook lower temperatures for a little bit longer time using this stuff and notice that your scale of doneness your desired doneness has shifted downward yes sears so much quicker that we can easily start to burn and part of that is because there's rice flour and koji, and you've got free sugars that have been produced, galactose, maltose uh, amongst them. So when you're searing something, it, it can burn, and you just got to be really careful of that. Uh, we'll do roast beef. We, we did like this huge, huge 17 bucks for a sandwich that's so much at our place. We did, Kenny put together this awesome uh, Philly cheesecake. We did like a whole roast beef that we grew the koji on and then cooked it in the oven.
so like you could you could do it that way. Like it it doesn't it doesn't have to be a pantsier. We took a whole top round and we cut it into two pieces so it could fit in the trays and stuff. But but yeah. So, uh, it doesn't matter. The koji will grow on anything. Like it, it nothing. You know, traditional classic spices that are like even antibacterial, right? Like things like cinnamon and garlic and chilies. Um, they have the koji's like bring it on. Let's do this. I'll grow right over you and eat you. If it looks good, tastes good, smells good, it is good. Those are the tenets of fermentation. And then one another. Could have been when you go in, when you went in for a taste, you introduced another microbe that was on the spoon or in the air, and they just threw things out of balance like that. It happens, and it can happen that quickly. So, um, but you know, yeah, like I said, like all those classes of things. If it looks good, tastes good, smells good, chances are it probably is good. So, um, that's that's a tenant of fermentation and. Cooking. Yeah, so you can cure this at one and a half percent salt. You don't have to do it at at the two and a quarter. We do because we like to serve this alongside like our ribeye charcuterie. You know, a piece of this, a piece of that, and some pickles on a plate. So it's cool to to kind of mimic those salt contents. If I wanted to take my yeast and mix them all in and make a fermented tortilla. Yeah. Would the, the call interact with this? Like, would they uh, or? They, they should be okay. There's a lot of people that are, are going through um, the next mineralization process and then growing koji on corn. So, I mean, you essentially could make your tortillas and then grow some koji on it and fry them up and get like a double crusted. They, they might even puff like pita. Yeah. Because the mycelium on the outside of those tortillas could be so strong, it probably like a like a puff pastry, like a layer in the dough. You might get some really cool things if you drop that in the fryer. What if, what if like how you're making miso mix it? Because you don't want to overcook. Yeah. Right, right. So like if you were making a miso, yeah, you just it's simple. Just take the mixed corn and. Mix it with some koji and salt, and you're you're there. You could take, you know, a lot of miso um, people that make miso use quote unquote a seed miso, so it's a, a little bit of an active miso that's actively going, and they'll put that into the new batch. Um, you know, that's that is uh, you know one of those things that's that's recommended um, because it does help you uh, jumpstart with like a really good straightforward microbial set that's reflective of the desired flavor and texture you want in the end result. So that always helps. She was super active. You can leave it out. It's meant to stay out. Amazaki is what you want to leave it. So, all right, so it's, uh, it's wrap up time. I'm cutting some of this beautiful European meal up. It's got this cozy crust. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.